This is Barry Zelma, Zelma on insurance. I am an attorney who has retired from the practice of law and now spend my time as an insurance claims consultant, an insurance claims expert witness, an author and producer of these videos. Today I'd like to talk about a true crime story drawn from my career as an insurance claims person and an insurance claims coverage lawyer. This one, of course, with all of the names changed to protect the guilty and the innocent, is called Liar, Liar, Pants on Fire. If Louis had been born 50 years earlier, he would have been called a gigolo. Louis was a classically handsome man. He stood six foot two inches tall, combed his black hair straight back in a style that would do Madison Avenue advertising executives proud. His eyes were an unblinking, watery blue that seemed to caress any woman at whom he looked. He ran three miles every morning and maintained a 180-pound lithe physique. Louis had a pleasant personality. Everyone he met liked him. He would drink beer with the boys and sip wine with distinguished and well-bred women. He wore a tuxedo as if Calvin Klein had his body in mind when it was designed. Louis was not smart. Louis graduated from Thomas Jefferson High School in San Jose with a solid D minus average. After leaving high school, Louis worked at various menial jobs from janitor to fry cook. He seldom held a job for more than six months. Louis, however, loved to dance. On weekends, he would drive up to San Francisco and spend every night dancing in the clubs. It was on one of these dancing adventures in San Francisco that changed Louis's life. Louis met Tony Di Battaglia. They danced every dance until the club closed at 4 a.m. They danced disco, waltzes, even country and western line dances. Tony told him she worked for the Teamsters Union out of New Jersey and visited San Francisco monthly. When Tony learned that Louis lived in San Jose, she invited him to her hotel, and their relationship blossomed. Tony was a wealthy and wonderful woman in her own right. She had a husband twenty years her senior who did not understand her. Louis was her release. They were in love. Tony did not love Louis for his intelligence. She did not love Louis for his ability to communicate. Tony loved Louis because he was beautiful, a good dancer, and made her look good whenever they were out together. Tony knew he could not afford to live in a manner in which she had grown accustomed. A suite at the Four Seasons Clift Hotel, where she always stayed, cost more for a night than Louis could earn in a month. Only one solution existed. She needed to support him. At first, Louis rebelled. Taking money from a beautiful woman was not proper for a virile, healthy young man. 
Tony was insistent, and Louis succumbed to her charm. Tony bought Louis a condominium in the marina district. She helped Louis furnish the condo with antiques to satisfy her taste. She would come to San Francisco for three or four days every month, and Tony would give Louis $5,000 cash each month to cover his expenses while she was gone. Louis would do whatever he wanted, except during the three days Tony was in town. Louis was a happy man. He lived better than he had in his life. He went out dancing every night. All of his clothes were custom-tailored. Louis and Tony were a magnificent, perfect couple. Every time Tony would visit, she would bring a gift for Louis. He didn't understand the gifts, but he accepted them with grace of a well-bred gentleman. The gifts were always personal jewelry or gifts for his condominium. One month she brought a sterling silver tea service that Tony said was a Victorian antique. Next she bought him a sterling silver cigarette case she said the famous Russian jeweler Fabergé made for the Romanov family before the Russian Revolution. She would bring him sculptures, oil paintings, silver candelabra, gold and diamond jewelry, or another bauble that piqued her fancy. To impress Louis, she told him the cost of each bauble. She exaggerated. Since he was unsophisticated and money still impressed him, often she would claim a gift cost her as much as $10,000 more than she actually paid for it. Louis thought he was rich. Louis, adding up what Tony told him she paid for each item, thought the value of his household goods was more than $3 million. Since Tony was away most of the month, Louis became bored. His only passion other than dancing was sports. He had a satellite dish installed on his condominium, and Louis would religiously follow each of the various sports channels. He even watched the Spanish-language sports channel, although he could not understand the commentary. His knowledge of sports was Catholic. He usually knew which team would win and by how much. When he explained his skill to Tony on one of her visits, she introduced him to a bookmaker. Tony suggested that he use his knowledge to make money by betting on sporting events. On her next visit, Louis pleasantly surprised Tony. He made enough betting on sporting events that he refused her cash contribution. She suggested that Louis set up a legitimate business and spell sell his sporting knowledge to the public. In this way, by just selling his choices, he could avoid any potential problem with the police. Tony had no compunction about violating the law. She wanted to keep Louis safe for her pleasure. Running the business kept Louis busy and made him more lovable to Tony. Their relationship continued for ten happy years. On a fateful November Sunday, while watching a San Francisco 49ers football game, 
A news flash interrupted the game to announce a mafia massacre in New Jersey. Four Teamsters Union officials, allegedly members of the Tortellini crime family, had been found dead in a parked Lincoln town car under an overpass of the Jersey Turnpike. All had been shot three times in the head with large caliber weapons. One of the dead was Tony Di Pataglia. Louis mourned. He no longer had a source of income and gifts. His sports business was failing. The partner he chose had taken all of the company assets and gone to Venezuela. He was broke. The love of his life, who supported him for many years, was dead. He had no skills, no profession. Louis owned his condo and could mortgage it. The proceeds would keep him for a short time. Louis needed a plan to make a large amount of money. He wanted to continue to live comfortably until he could meet someone else like Tony who would support him in the manner he had grown accustomed to living. The solution was his insurance policy. Tony had insisted that he always keep a condo owner's policy on his condominium. His condo owner's policy had a $400,000 limit. Although Tony had led him to believe that the antiques she had given him were worth more than a few million dollars, he, he'd just make a list describing the various items in the condominium and place beside each description the amounts Tony told him she had paid. He would then report to the police and his insurance company that he'd been robbed of items very much like the items in the house. Neither the police nor the insurance company could prove, since Tony was dead, that he was lying. The amount claimed would be more than the policy limit. Louis was sure the insurance company would immediately pay $400,000. Just before Christmas, Louis called the police to report that two armed robbers had come to his door, pretending to be UPS delivery men. They gained entrance. Holding him captive with pistols, he would say they removed from his condo more than a million dollars in silver, fine arts, and jewelry. Included on the list were 25 bronze statues by Erte, a Georgian silver pern, three Fabergé silver and gold cigarette cases, two Fabergé picture frames made of semi-precious stones, gold and silver, a Victorian sterling silver tea set, two Georgian sterling silver tea sets, a Victorian sterling flatware service for twelve, two diamond rings, and a solid golden diamond Rolex watch. The total value of all the items Louis claimed stolen equaled a million three hundred thousand dollars. The insurance company assigned its staff adjuster to investigate the loss. The adjuster was a 25-year-old young woman who had started the profession two years before the day Louis reported the robbery. The opulence of Louis's condominium and his good looks blinded her. It was clear to her inexperienced eye that the house was full of lovely antiques. She had no reason to disbelieve Louis when he told her 
that what was still in the house was worth more than two million dollars. She presented the claim to her home office and re recommended, since the loss exceeded the policy limit by a factor of three, that they pay the full policy limit. Older and wiser people resided at the insurance company home office. Before they would authorize payment of $400,000 on a claim, they wanted evidence that the values Louis asked them to pay was reasonable and substantiated. They accepted the adjuster's report as fact that Louis got all of the items by gift. The insurance company accepted that he could not therefore prove ownership or value. They expected, however, that he could, by comparison to the items still present, provide enough description to allow them to establish the true value of the items stolen. The insurance company hired a fine arts appraiser who visited with Louis. The appraiser, looking at the initial written list, knew that Louis was unsophisticated about antiques and items. He could not spell Fabergé or a pern, and seemed to have difficulty with describing his items of silver. He would describe, for instance, silver as Victorian, and yet insist it was manufactured before Victoria took the throne. Louis claimed Sheffield's silver as sterling, not knowing that Sheffield was famous as a center for a specific type of silver plate. The appraiser studied the silver and other items of art Louis still had in his home. She was convinced that his claims of value was fraudulent or, at the very least, highly inflated. The value stated on Louis's claim did not agree with any reasonable market. The items he claimed to be Fabergé were undervalued by thousands of dollars. Silver items claimed to be Georgian and Victorian were overvalued by a factor of three or more in the opinion of the appraiser. The appraiser reported his conclusions to the insurer, the insurance company home office personnel, to aid Louis in describing his property hired an attorney experienced in fine arts. The lawyer was instructed to examine Louis under oath. The insurance company hoped the lawyer would gain more detailed descriptions of the items stolen. They expected, with professional questioning, Louis would establish the true amount of his loss. They could not pay because the appraiser told them that the loss could be in a range from 40000 to $1 million, depending on what the real items were. Louis testified for two days. He was frightened. The lawyer, although always friendly, caused Louis to break out in cold sweats he hoped was not visible. He did not tell the truth about anything to the lawyer. Louis limited his descriptions of the property stolen to the list he had written before he had called the insurance company. Despite how detailed the lawyer's probing, Louis stuck to the description he had written. When the lawyer questions Louis's ability to earn money to keep the condo, he created a story to show that he had a source of income. Louis told the lawyer that Tony's family sent him after her death an annuity of $10,000 cash every month. The money came each month in a plain brown baggage via UPS. When the examination under oath 
were finished, the insurance company and its lawyer were convinced Louis was attempting to defraud it. The lawyer, with the approval of the insurance company, advised Louis that the insurance company denied the claim. Of course, Louis sued. Five years later, a superior court jury, after hearing all the evidence, sent him away with nothing. Although Louis was a convincing actor, the jury concluded that Louis had been robbed. The jury concluded also that he had lied to the insurance company about the existence and value of the property. They gave judgment for the insurance company. It did not have to pay $400,000 to Louis. It did, however, find itself paying more than $700,000 to its lawyers and experts who made it possible for them to win the lawsuit. Insurance fraud did not pay for Louis. Fighting fraud, however, saved his insurance company nothing. In fact, to defeat the fraud, the insurance company spent more than it would have cost if it had paid the claim in full. Justice was done, and Louis lived happily ever after. During the trial, he met Carla, a CPA with offices on the 33rd floor of a building on California Street, who his lawyers had hired. Carla took Tony's place. Louis still lives in his condos, surrounded by what he believes are antiques. Whenever Carla visits, Louis receives a new bauble. Carla pays his expenses. Louis will never again try insurance fraud. The insurance company will consider expense before it decides to deny a claim for fraud. Honest people will pay more for insurance than they should, and life will go on. This video was adapted from a chapter in my book, Heads I Win, Tales You Lose, a uh, collection of insurance fraud stories. It is available as both a paperback and as a Kindle book from Amazon.com. If you found this video to be useful, please pass it on to your colleagues. And please subscribe to my YouTube channel and to my blog so that you can learn about new posts. Thank you again for your attention.